Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Belinda Morgan. Belinda is a partner in Foley's Chicago office with a practice focused on employee benefits, executive compensation, and ERISA-related matters. In this discussion, Belinda reflects on her journey to Purdue University for college and eventually to the University of Illinois College of Law. I say eventually because Belinda thought she would be on another path, a path that included perhaps comic book design or graphic design, but instead life led her to law school. Also, Belinda talks quite a bit about her employee benefits and ERISA-related practice. Belinda is the second ERISA attorney we have had on the show, and I think it's so important to explore this area of the law because, frankly, it's an area that intimidates many lawyers. But one of the main reasons I wanted to get Belinda on the show is to talk about her meditation practice. I'm an avid meditator and connected with Belinda because she was leading a meditation challenge for the Chicago office. I wanted to get her on to have her share her journey to meditation and the role it plays in her own self-care. We recorded this podcast in May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I think it's so important that in addition to learning about the practice areas of lawyers at Foley, about their journey to the law, that we also hear about the self-care tools lawyers are using to take care of themselves on the journey. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Belinda. Belinda Morgan, welcome to The Path and the Practice. I'm so excited to have you here. Let's just start by having you give your professional introduction. Okay, well, thank you, Alexis. Like, it's it's been a while since I have had to do this in, and really even talk to real people from much of this last past year. So I, I guess I'm Belinda Morgan. I'm with the Chicago Office of Foley and Lardner. I'm a partner in the Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation area. I would say that my work involves helping our employer clients, which are pretty much any of our clients, structure their benefits and executive compensation to really help meet their needs and structure their benefits. So like they're they're driving their business forward, keeping their employees happy, which most of them really, really want to do most of the time. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. And for those, for listeners who maybe listen to this six months in the future, or I don't know, years in the future, we are recording this in May of 2021. Interesting transitional time where the world is sort of starting to open up post-pandemic, but yes, many of us have not had a lot of interaction with others over the past 15 months or so, and, and it's true. And But Belinda, I'll be honest, I actually really miss professional events because as somebody with, my kids aren't super young, but they're still young, so I'm often kind of you know trying to spend time with them on the weekend and don't do, don't do a lot of fun things in the evenings, particularly not when there's a pandemic, but I, that was my, that was my social life. I think was going to professional events. <laughs> so I, there's a confession for everybody. That, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm impressed with you on that one, Alexis. I, I have to admit that that is not my favorite thing to do. I don't mind meeting people if I've got sort of a something to do, but the whole going up to people and saying, Hey, I'm Belinda. Here's what I do. That one is one that just usually fills me with a little bit of dread. But here's the secret for me. I was at that point, and you probably had this too, where you like are on the same circuit. So that's how I would see people I already knew is we happen to be at the same event. But anyway, let's jump in and talk about you and not the fact that we, and maybe it'll be apparent to both to, to listeners that we're both, you know, lacking social graces that we used to have <laughs> due to the pandemic. Fair enough. But let's start, let's start somewhat at the beginning. Where are you from or where did you grow up? I am from all over the place. My dad was a psychiatric nurse in the Air Force. So he went wherever they had psychiatric hospitals. I was actually born in Alaska. Really don't remember any of the fun part of being born in Alaska, but we we hopped around a lot between San Antonio, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, because that's where the big psychiatric hospitals were. So that's where he got posted sort of back and forth. And then once 
my dad retired, apparently we all had the traveling around bug because we moved from Indiana to Florida, then back to Indiana. So my mom's hometown was in Indiana. That's kind of where we landed at the end where I graduated from high school and went to college, things like that. So I guess I'm from Indiana. But at this point, I probably lived in Chicago longer than I lived anywhere else in my entire life. <laughs> so if I forced you to choose, it sounds like you'd sort of claim Indiana. But you just set up some interesting things between my dad was a psychiatric nurse and we would travel a lot. I would love if you could give me just a little bit more detail, in particular for you, what you were into when you were younger. So if I found you and say, I'm just picking a random de- middle school, you know, I, I don't know if it depends on kind of like where you were, but what were your, what interests did you, what, what were you, what were you into in middle school? In middle school, I was a huge kind of nerd, still can sort of call myself a huge nerd. My sister and I collected comic books back then. Um, and if I kept any of those in really good condition, we probably would have some that were worth a lot of money, which we're kicking ourselves for. But it was more, you know, to read them and things like that. So a lot of reading. We lived on a farm for a while and, you know, not a huge farm, like 20 acres. So we play, you know, spies and war and all the things you can do on a sort of a big plot of land during that time period. That was when I was in middle school is when my dad had retired. So that's, we were living in Indiana at that time. I mean, I was just, because we're out on that farm, we, you know, we didn't have a lot of friends over any time or anything like that. So it was a lot of just hanging out with my siblings. I've got three, or sorry, two sisters and a younger brother, two younger sisters and a younger brother. And then I have four older half sisters. So we kind of had this weird Brady Bunch vibe going for a while very big family on a, you know, a farm. So that's probably, you know, animals. We had a lot of like pigs and cows and stuff like that. Uh, it was kind of it was a different, different situation. That's for I sure. I have to say, you know, this is a really unofficial poll, but I think many of the Foley attorneys who I've had on the show, when I've asked them what sort of kid they were, they start with the either self-described bookish or nerdy or intimidating. Now you added comic books. So I think that's actually, that was a little bit different of an answer, but that's really cool. And I'm just curious on, so we're having that farm. Did you have responsibilities too? Were the kids, did they have to sort of work on the farm as well? Well, I mean, it, it was 20 acres, right? So it was like sort of a hobby farm, but we did have animals. So yeah, we, we were feeding the animals and it was Indiana. So it was 4-H. She did, you know, we, like I had sheep that I raised to take to the the fair and showed them in the fair, like all the little, you know, 4-H kids did at the time. I had rabbits. So mostly our, our farm animals were really pets that, you know, were really big. So you had the cows that you named. We had two, I think we had, yeah, two or three that, it was a really old farmhouse, like a hundred year old farmhouse that we lived in. And the basement was just sort of a hole dug in the side of the the like hill that the house was built on. So my mom and dad, when they got these, a couple of cows, like little calves, they kept the calves in the basement as we raised them up for a little while so that they would stay warm and, you know, that sort of thing. It was a very, <laughs> very much... You would go downstairs to the basement, hang out with your pet cows. It was it was kind of a weird situation. I love this. Well, I have to tell you, I think the last time there was a little bit of a talk of animal husbandry on this podcast was with Jay Rothman. <laughs> oh, okay. We're in good company. <laughs> and that is, so for listeners, that is our CEO. And he uh, grew up also on a farm, although his dad was a dentist who also had a farm. And he said that he felt like he was his dad's what number one employee or his dad didn't realize that he was also his child, but also, but treated as the employee. <laughs> no, but that, that's, that's fantastic. And I, and also I'm, so I'm from Wisconsin as listeners also know, I don't know what size of farm is more hobby farm. What's more of a giant. So I appreciate you going into details there. I, I mean, I think the fact that we, we're ours was a hobby farm mostly is because my mom thought of it as a real farm, but the IRS did not think of it as a real farm. That's how we decided it was actually a hobby farm once the, the taxing people told us otherwise. So understood. Yeah. That makes it makes sense. So all right. So tell me more. We 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 have a, a snapshot of what you know middle schoolish age looks like for you. You're in Indiana. You go to high school. 
what are the thoughts beyond high school? Is that when college happened? What 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 was next for you in life? Well, I mean, in high school, I thought I might want to be a doctor. Like, I don't know where that came from. It was either a doctor or a comic book artist. Like, that's where I was like throwing up my hands between. I went to Purdue University. And when I first got there, they were like, you cannot be both. Pick one. And it's like, okay, I'll do art. And so I ended up getting a fine arts degree from Purdue University. That was probably not my best decision ever, uh, quite, quite honestly. I kind of went back and forth, like, should I do business? And so I, I kind of bounced around a little bit in my middle, like sophomore year, I was in business, but then went back and did fine arts. And I liked it, but it wasn't with a thought to what will you do once you get out? So that was a mistake. I did retail work once I got out. I had been working at Kohl's department store and I continued to work there for a while longer after graduating. And then I went back and I got an associate's degree in technical graphics. So more drafting, you know, doing that kind of stuff. Worked with a company down in Ohio that uh, in Cincinnati it was kind of cool. They did at the time, it was cutting edge work. You, We took blueprints of machines that for like a serial production line, we would draft the, you know, make the pictures of all the machines, how they were supposed to look. The company had some technology that they used Mac computers that it was touchscreen at that time. So that's why I mean, it was like, that was at the time yeah. cutting edge. You could touch a part and it would pop up with the name of the part and it would show the guys who were repairing the machines, how it all worked. Unfortunately, they didn't have many clients. They had like one big client. And when that client slowed down, that was sort of the end yeah. of the company. And that, that's when I started working with Kinko's, Kinko's the copy center, making copies and sort of questioning what I had done with my life up until that point, honestly. This is the best part of the show. So other things I want to share with listeners, Belinda and I have met before, but we have not sat down and had a really meaningful conversation. So spoiler alert, we all know how this ends. <laughs> <laughs> but now that we're in it right now, I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? How do you manage to get to Foley? What happens next? But also what you said about you were like doctor or graphic design or actually what was it wasn't even it was it was fine arts or, or fine, fine arts. Yeah. And so your episode is premiering right after my episode. I got a partner at Foley to sit down with me to do this same thing. And I talked about how I kind of had those two sides of my brain. I had one side that was artistic you know, like, like theater and photography. And it, just as you said, you know, this was a while ago in terms of what you were doing with the graphics. In my episode, I, I mentioned how digital cameras were like just becoming the thing, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I think a lot of people be like, Alexis, you're not that old, but it was like, it was a while ago. But anyway, I, I did pursue the more, what I guess is, is a left brain, that more analytical side, which was the law school side. But I do think so many of us have this combination within us. And so you, you know, you chose that, that path of, you know, of art. And actually, Anna Rome as another guest on the show, she also has, I think, it's like, a I think it's a bachelor's in theater, but also, so there's, a, you're not, see, we, we're drawing some connections here. But okay, so, you, so, so you're doing stuff with Kinko's, you did stuff with retail. So then what happens? Then what do you do? Well, honestly, the, how I got to law school was that I, got really tired of making copies. And it just so happened that I, it, at the time I had been in, I was in Lafayette, Indiana, where Purdue is around, and I was promoted to Champaign, Illinois. That's where the University of Illinois is. The law school is there. One of my coworkers at Kinko's, the, the person who did the, like the computer lab part of Kinko's at the time, her roommate was a dean of students at the law school. And she was like, you should talk to my roommate if you're bored with making copies. Maybe law school is the thing for you. And so I was like, okay, what's the worst that this happens? I pay, you know, 150 or whatever the cost to take the LSAT was. So I took the LSAT and I did reasonably well and, you know, applied for different schools around. There were some that it was like, oh, there's a scholarship. I will apply to that job because I was working at Kinko's as an assistant manager. So it wasn't like I was, and I, I was out like, out of college, probably probably 10 years at that point. So I wasn't, and my parents weren't going to be paying for my law school or anything like that. So I had to figure out how am I going to do this? So I applied to different places and including the University of Illinois because I was lazy and did not want to like have to move if I didn't really have to. And I lucked out and got into the U of I. I got into a couple, like one other one that offered me at like a half scholarship down in Georgia. And I was like, okay, well, I, they, they flew us down there and we got to meet a, like a famous wow. litigator and all this kind of stuff. And 
it was it was interesting. It was different than what I was used to. In the, it was a very much the Deep South kind of mm-hmm. thing, and I mm-hmm. was not quite used to living in the Deep South. So, you know, juggling like which is which one was better ranked and that sort of thing. I ended up just staying in Champaign because mostly I was lazy and did not want to move. I'd done enough moving for a little while, so I stayed in Illinois, and kind of told myself I, I worked at Kinko's at night on weekends. I looked at the overnights on the weekends as a first year because I figured that way if I didn't like it or I didn't do very well at law school, I you know, I quit after the first year mm-hmm. and just go back to being a Kinko's person. And it it worked out well because I didn't run up too much debt at first. And luckily for me at the time this, the prices have gone up considerably. so much, oh yeah, astronomically, yes. Phenomenally. And so at that time, I could do that. And I was very lucky at that. And I, it turned out that I, I liked it. I did well enough. So I kept working my second year in law school. I worked at Kinko's that year too. But then I was, you know, that summer was the summer associate year with, not with Foley, but with the firm that I started with and then merged in with Foley mm-hmm. pretty much as soon as I, I got there. Was so. that which firm was that by the way? That was Hopkins and it was it was Hopkins, Hopkins Center. Center. Yeah, okay. I, right after I started, I it, and I shouldn't even say this because it just shows you how bad I was my last year of uh, law school. I didn't keep track enough with the folks up in at Hopkins. They gave me the offer, and I was like super excited. I went and did my classes, didn't worry about things. Um, one of my sisters was sick, so I um, was hanging out with her during the times off. And when I got up here right before we were supposed to start right after Labor Day, I found out that we were merging with Foley for Hopkins. So a little bit delayed. Well, and I think one of the claims to fame for Hopkins and Sutter, and I'm certain Hopkins and Sutter is an awesome firm that did a lot of great stuff, but was that Barack Obama was a, was he a summer associate at Hopkins? He was a summer associate Prior, I don't know exactly when. It was before I got there. But yeah, he was a summer associate with Hopkins. They were also really well known for tax. So we had folks, one of my colleagues in the benefits group actually has a pen that Gerald Ford used to sign the ERISA law into, like signed ERISA into law, which is a big deal for benefits nerds like me. So he has one of those pens. And it's they were very instrumental in pushing through a lot of like tax legislation. That was what they were really well known for. So I think we may get into some of that when we talk a bit more about your practice, which is not yet. We'll be we'll be soon. Okay. But I, one thing I mentioned the Barack Obama thing, because I think I've shared on LinkedIn before that you know how firms will just list list those like random facts about who's worked there or had touch points. Foley, we we do claim that connection with having had Barack Obama as a summer because Hopkins became Foley. So that's one that's, thing. But okay. also, Belinda, I have questions. Okay. About, I think it's so interesting and you know also funny that you're like, I'm going to try this law school thing. And if it doesn't work out, I can keep my job. You're not the first person I've talked to who's done that. A former colleague of mine at another firm she was a nurse in a former life. And this was many years ago, maybe, you know, went to law school. I don't even know how long ago, but she was like, she was a nurse full time while going to law school full time. And then even when she graduated, she's like, I kept a couple shifts and, and just had moonlit moonlighting as a nurse, just in case this lawyer thing didn't work out. Like I had somewhere to go, but it's a similar sort of like, I think this is great. I want to do this, but I want, this gives me a safety net. It's helping me pay for the cost of this and I already have this job. So I, I think that is so interesting, but how was it juggling the two? I mean, it couldn't have been easier or was it? Well, it wasn't that, for me, it wasn't that bad because I was working like Friday, Saturdays and doing the overnight, there was an overnight premium, right? So I could work overnights two days a week and make almost as much as I was making had I been working full-time during the week. So it kind of helped that way. And then I just went to class during the week. So that part wasn't a problem. It's not that I think law school is easy, but it was geared, I think, to my method of studying, which was always cram at the very end. Like, you know, keep up with everything, but then cram it all in at the end and take one giant test. Like, that was amazing because it if you got a little behind, you could always catch back up. And then there was writing your ridiculously long outlines and things like that. And the memorization was something that at the time I could do pretty well. And so I could memorize that outline, go in and take the one test. And, you know, it was, that part worked better for me. If I, I, and I, I think I was lucky because I was going in as an older student 
I didn't have as much pressure as some of the kids who are coming in. And I say kids, they weren't that much younger at the time, but they were still younger and they were, you know, under more pressure, I think. Like, you know, some of them had been, they went through undergrad thinking, I'm going to go to law school. They went straight through to law school. They hadn't had a job or really done a lot of stuff between times. So they didn't know, like, there's something out there for you. You could find something if you had to. You're yeah. a smart and there's, person. there's perspective. Like you just had perspective having taken that that time off in between. And there's a couple things I want to ask, but and I, I nobody kill me for going out of order. But the time you spent at Kinkos and even at, at Kohl's and retail, but really these customer service facing roles. I have to know, what did you learn there that you think, because there's, I think there's some things you learned in those roles that still serves you well today would be my guess. They, they did. I think the thing that it taught me the most, honestly, like, and the thing that when I, and this is, goes out of order a little bit when we, in our t- talk about like what I would suggest to people, it taught me that it, you don't, you can't tell who people are by what they might look like. One of the like biggest lessons I learned at at Kohl's was that, you know, we during the Christmas season, everybody would come in and like you would get any kind of mix of people. And we would have people come in in overalls and t-shirts and things like that. And some of the associates, we weren't paid on commission, so I don't know why people were like this, but they would not pay as much attention to the people who weren't dressed to the nines or something like that. And those invariably, the guy in the the overalls would come into like the electronics department where I work and will pull out a wad of cash to buy like, you know, five VCRs for all the kids in his family or whatever. And I think that was the first thing, like, you know, you can't always tell what people are going to be like. So you should treat everybody kind of as nicely as you can. And then the other thing was that remember who is helping you as you come out. Like when I came out and started in law, I really did not know what was going on. It didn't feel like I could always ask the lawyers because then you kind of look dumb. You know, like if you have to ask a sort of a process question. So I relied on my assistants so much and the staff people who helped me figure out, okay, how do you do X, Y, and Z? And that's one of the biggest things I think is like, you know, remember that those are the people who are going to help you. And if you're jerky to them at the beginning, they may not be as willing to help you later, you know, when you need it. And so like, I know in like that kind of stuff happens when you're not nice to people in retail mm-hmm. because I've been on that other side of the counter. Yeah, because it's the same. It's the same thing of treating people like people, recognizing that you know everyone's important and deserves respect. But that key about when you're a junior lawyer, new to a firm, treating everyone respectfully and kindly, but understanding just how much more most of the administrative staff knows than you do. <laughs> and and to, get, to get really specific, many of the administrative assistants, they are more important than you. They know more than you. They've been at this firm a long, long, long yes. time, and they are more important to the partners than you are. <laughs> so depending on the relationship. No, and it's absolutely true. And like, you know, and they've been like, I just, both of my assistants had just retired and one of them was here for 50 years. She also came from Hopkins. So, but all told, 50 years and the other had 30 years of experience. And so they kind of knew where all the bodies were buried in terms of getting things done, who to go to. And I just, I can't imagine coming into a job and not treating really everybody with respect because you may have to have some help someday, just like they may want to ask you too, but you know, you can't just, you can't be that person who Absolutely. Well, another theory that I have for this show that the show illustrates is that no experience is wasted. And so I really appreciate when I have attorneys on who have had either it's like retail experience or bartending or food service. And we, we talk about it because inevitably there's things that they learned that have served them really well. And because because ultimately you 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 learned about people. And even though it can feel different, you know, when you're in a big shiny high rise, but we're a professional services firm. It's exactly, so, yeah, it's very so much it, the same. That's exactly right. And when I'm talking to law students or someone contemplating law school, sometimes they'll shy away and say, Well, I've only had X experience. And I say, you've learned a lot from that. That was valuable to you. Don't feel like you can't, you know, use that as an example. And sure, at a certain point, you know, once you become a lawyer and you practice for a bit, the title of your resume will say professional experience. So you may no longer have certain things out there, or you might, because they still show who you are as a person. But anyway, I just think that's so important. But taking you back to law school, did you have a sense of what sort of lawyer you wanted to be? Or how did you figure that out? 
Honestly, at that time, I thought I, I, I toyed with IP for a little while until I found out that you really had to have a really technical degree. I you know, thought a bit about the softer IP, but then I got into a class for estate planning, and I really, really liked that. And I think partly it was because there was you know, a lot, well, the, a lot of the cases were these juicy kind of dramas, family drama type things. So that was interesting. But then I thought there was probably going to be more of a chance that I would have more people-based sort of work to be done. Uh, and so that was kind of interesting. And I that's sort of where I got to. I like that there was a tax aspect to it that made it a little bit more complicated, but still that you were going to be with somebody in front of them trying to help them plan what to do with their future. So that part was like, that's where I thought I was wanting to go. And then when I started with Hopkins and you know went through the summer really like the firm, what I found out was that they really didn't have room for any more estate planning people. But they did have a tax slash business law slot. And so that's sort of where I got fitted in. So it was to do tax, insurance tax is what they were doing. So I, I started out that way and trying to find work to kind of like make up, fill my plate. So I did, I did insurance tax. I did some nonprofit work. I did some election law work. And then eventually it got to the point where I think in, in Milwaukee, we had employee benefits was mostly up there. I think we had one one of the partners here who's here in Chicago was the only person here. But the, there was two associates in Milwaukee and benefits. And I had done a little bit of work here and there for some of the benefits folks. But both of the associates left like with in short order. And they really just needed somebody. And they asked me fully, said, hey, are you interested in trying a whole new practice area? And I had done a little bit. And it sort of brought me back to that there's some kind of human component to the benefits section. So I said, sure, why not? I'll try it. And there was also the tax component, which was interesting. And then ERISA, which everybody said, it's really horrible. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard, which I thought was good because that sort of made me employable. If I could learn that and nobody else wanted to do it, then there I was, a job for life as an ERISA lawyer. So that's kind of how I sort of fell into benefits. And I lucked out because my group is just like it, most of the people are still here. We've like had a few come and go, but we have a really great group. And so it, w- it was easy to like who I was working with. So that really helped make it easier. So you, And you were up for the challenge because, and we will get into this a bit. I do think ERISA and also tax are two of those practice areas that people are sort of like eh, a little intimidated by. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But I also love what you said about you were looking for something that at least to you felt like it had more of that connection to people. There were, you know, human actors <laughs> involved in a maybe a more yeah. directly human way. And it was funny. And we all know what happened with me. I don't, I don't practice at all anymore. But I similarly was like labor and employment. That's where the people are. I should do labor and employment work. And eventually, after about, I guess, six plus years into my career, I I I got that. But I will say it never once occurred to me that estate planning and benefits were also where the people were, or, <laughs> but clearly they are. <laughs> And, and labor and employment, though, that's all. I mean, that's one of those groups where we kind of cross a lot and people do. never know yes. what you do versus that's like right. the L&E people. But you guys do a lot more. That was litigation. And that like scared me. I did not want to do litigation components really at all. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Like when I said, oh, let me go be a lawyer. I'll be a prosecutor. And then I yep. realized like after the first year of law school, it's like, oh, hey, you don't have to just go. Oh, I don't have be, to do that. I'm not going to be a prosecutor or a defender or something like that. Oh, wow. It's not like it is on TV. Who exactly. knew? <laughs> There's other things. Yeah. Well, and tell me a bit. So I've had one other member of your practice group on associate out of Milwaukee, Kelsey O'Gorman, and she did a great job of breaking down a lot about, you know, what this is and what we do. But of course, a lot of people probably haven't, you know, listened to Kelsey, or maybe they can go back and listen to her. But I would love if you would talk a bit about what your what your day to day is like. And maybe we can talk a bit about why people find Arisa intimidating. We'll see if we get there. But yeah, so what is your practice? What do you do day to day? What do I do day to day? Well, I do a fair amount of deal work. So it's a matter of, you know, helping the transactional team that are doing M&A transactions, look into due diligence and things like that for a deal. Generally, if we're on, you know, just depends on which side we are, what we're doing exactly. And that's, that's a fair amount of work. It's, it's not so much working with clients though. It's, it's for like the buyer or the seller a bit, but you're not like working directly. It's more like a puzzle 
sort of a detective kind of situation where you're trying to figure out if anything is wrong and if it is, how do you fix it? And tell me, tell me if I get this wrong because I've, I've sadly I might I feel like I shouldn't. But when you say deal work, but in the employee benefits context, it's something you know something's being bought or sold, a large company, and it has people involved, and you're making sure that what's currently structured or how it's being structured doesn't violate those what retirement related or employee related laws and regulations. So yeah, dive in. Cause I know I'm slightly butchering that. No, but. no, that's actually pretty close. Um, so yeah, it is, it's in the context of one company buying another company and we're looking to make sure that the employees that work for the company being sold, if we're the buyer that we're figuring out, how are we going to provide benefits for those people? going forward, making sure that they have like retirement plan options, if that's something the buyer does, healthcare, especially healthcare. Like that's the one thing that we always have to like concentrate on, making sure that there's healthcare options going forward. And yeah, it is it is trying to make sure that if somebody has maybe screwed something up in the administration of a 401k plan or something like that, that either it can be fixed or there's a way to deal with it before the transaction takes place. It's, it's, you know, finding out like the little, like looking at that, figuring out what's the best way for our client to either make sure it's, if you're on the seller side, making sure it's employees are taken care of after the transaction is over or if you're on the buyer side, making sure that your new employees will remain your new employees and not be mad because you've screwed up their benefits completely and bringing them over into your, into your kind of, camp on that side. So and I think you mentioned that's one one aspect is the deal work, which right. means there's other aspects as well to it. And so what do those look like? There's, you know, the other aspects are day-to-day counseling type things with employers calling clients who are, you know, trying to address some of the new laws that are coming out. We've just recently with the new one of the new tax laws of the American Rescue Plan, there's a whole COBRA subsidy, which allows employees who didn't have COBRA, were terminated because of the pandemic, to get on COBRA and retain their health benefits for some period of time. And there was a lot of retroactive components to that law. So it's a matter of, you know, helping people figure out how do they apply that. And that's just one law. You know, there's any number of things that can go wrong if you're just day-to-day managing your 401k plan and some little thing has gotten incorrectly, like you didn't send your contributions from your employees to the the bank quickly enough, you know, that sort of thing. There's like things you have to do to fix that. And it's just a matter of like helping them figure out what's the best path forward, the least expensive way of fixing something if you need to fix it, if it needs to be fixed at all. Sometimes people think there's an error and there's really not. We do drafting, you know, for some of the stuff like I'm sure that Kelsey mentioned to doing employment agreements, looking at the benefits related provisions of those, equity plans, helping companies that are especially like startups. We do a fair amount of work with startups, like putting in place stock option plans and explaining how those work in different areas, things like that. I mean, so it's it's varied. It's it's kind of nice because you're kind of always doing a lot of different things. I'll have, you know, it's not un- unusual to have five or six little entries on my timesheet every day where I did a little bit of something for everybody. Well, and we have to touch the the acronym ERISA because okay. we said it, and I'm gonna and I have to look it up every time because I'll only get it sort of right. And it's the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974 as amended. Yes, they're sure what she what you said. And it's, it's a federal law that sets minimum standards for mostly voluntarily established retirement and health plans and private individuals and protections for individuals in these plans. And I did Google that because, like I said, I don't currently practice. But I do want to tell people what that is because you will hear, whether you're as a law student or at some point as a lawyer, you'll hear someone say, oh, that's covered by ERISA. And sometimes when they say that, it might have this sort of like, that's really complicated. We give that to the ERISA lawyers, which is what you know Belinda is. I don't know if you have any comments just in general on what that that means or why people say that, but let's let's educate the listeners a little bit. It is complicated in ways, but I think it comes down to you said it in your Googling description is that it protects employees. And so almost all of the rules of ERISA come back to the fact that you can't, as an employer, do things that will essentially hurt your employees when it comes to their retirement plans. And ERISA came to be because I think it was Studebaker, the old-timey car company, essentially set up a pension plan 
and then set aside money for people who were going to retire using that pension plan, and then went out of business and took the money and sort of ran off with it. And so ERISA was the reaction to the employees who had worked all their lives thinking they were going to have a pension not being able to have any kind of recourse to protect themselves, to make, make sure that their employer was playing fair with the, the benefits that they had been promised. So Absolutely. And one of the reasons I, I love, there's so many reasons I love doing this show, but as we get law students listening, this type of discussion, the discussion that Belinda and I have had for the past five minutes or so, when you're interviewing for OCI or you're meeting law firms and the firm starts throwing these acronyms out at you in practice areas, just that two minutes of having someone say, this is really what that is. It keeps, um, you know, companies make sure that they're in compliance and you know, protects employees. That's really helpful because otherwise, you know, I certainly didn't know what a ERISA was <laughs> before, before I went to law school. So Belinda, I really appreciate that explanation. But I want to switch gears a bit with you because one of the reasons that we're talking right now is we connected over a mindfulness I don't want to say challenge, but program that Foley Chicago office is doing this month related to meditation. Um, and also we're recording this in May. This is, you know, I think going to post in June. So it'll be a little, little late, but May is mental health awareness month, which is one of the reasons why Foley was doing this program. But I saw that you were helping to coordinate this and it was to track at least a hundred minutes of meditation over a two week period. And I emailed you and I said, this is so great that we're doing this. I am a daily meditator. I'm definitely going to track it so that I can participate. And we exchanged a couple emails just about the role meditation has played in our life. So I would love to talk a bit about that and how you found meditation and what impact it's had for you. Well, okay. So I found it in fits and spurts, basically. I knew that it would be good for me. Starting out, coming into the job after having done all the things that I had done before, it was sort of my first really real job, I kind of thought of it as. And I did not want to lose my really real job that I really liked and liked I mean, I liked the pay that I was making at the time. I did not want to go back after I was in that position for a while. So I tended to be very much a workaholic, still kind of in that way. So anything that you needed, I would be there for. I, I did not have a very good sense of like life balance at all, or even life sort of balance. And after a while, it started to become an issue for me. My, my daily commute was problematic. I drive to work. I'm not even very far. I live two miles away and park in the garage underneath our building, which is super convenient, but it's a two mile commute. And I would be so stressed having just come into work after that two, two mile drive because of the traffic. And I was just cranky mm-hmm. right from the get go. And I knew that that was a problem. So I started trying to look for ways to like okay, what can I do to get away from this? So I started looking, I would listen to books on tape and that sort of helped me not think about the commute. And it sort of morphed into, then I listened, at some point I must have listened to some sort of book that had to deal with meditation. I was like, okay, that sounds great. But I was one of those people that I would start to do it. And, you know, they you think you have to clear your mind. And like that, you can't. That's not possible. I can't do this. This is not for me. I'm done. Exactly. And so that's <laughs> how I was. I was like that a lot. I went back and forth and I eventually got to the point where I, I, I knew it would be good for me, but one of my sisters got sick and had the illness affected her brain. And so we were trying to figure out ways to kind of help her get back some of her brain function, that sort of thing. And I fell into this sort of rabbit hole of all these different neuroplasticity books and then ways of dealing with um, stress. And then it, it was kind of amazing how like, the stress-related books and then the neuroplasticity books all kind of converged on meditation. Mm. So I started being more interested in meditation, and I think it was it was Gina Cho who was one of the anxious lawyers. She's the author of the Anxious Lawyer. She had a CLE that got sponsored, I think, by Safarth and Shaw as one of the sponsors, and they did the CLE program. So I sat through that and did the CLE, learned a little bit more about meditation found that it really was helpful and started to do it more and more on a a regular basis. And I, I, I'm not always like a really long-term meditation person in terms of like, I, I do try to do it daily. I may not do more than 15 minutes some days just because it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But I've been amazed at how much it helps just with the stress levels. And between that and 
you know, reading a lot of, and well, actually listening to it on Audible because that's how I've still been able to drive back and forth to work without like wanting to be tearing my hair out by the time I get to the office. Listening to just a lot of different stuff, and I've, I've, I've got a number of different teachers and Buddhism teachers, which I don't know that I'm like a Buddhist or anything like that, but I like the teachings of Buddhism well, and the, the tenets, like the tenets for right. getting by in day to day life. I would say, right. you know, they're from thousands of year, years ago, but they still apply, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, it's exactly that. And there's a lot of you know newer, newer, I guess it's kind of new agey type people who apply those tenets, and then just in thinking about things like what's really important in terms of was it really important that I got something out, you know, right this very minute versus doing something that was a little bit more important from a mental health or self-care sort of standard? And so I kind of didn't like stop being that same person that was kind of more driven, but I was able to look back and think, okay, I can, I can do this in a better way. I don't have to get stressed out about everything. I can look at what other people are doing and not necessarily think that, everything is because they want to fire me or, you know, it was like, that was the, one of the first things that with the meditation, it really helped me to like step away from those negative thoughts that I think lawyers as sort of type A and perfectionists, if something happens and you don't hear back, like I sent off an email and I didn't hear back from the other partner within, you know, 15 minutes saying, Oh, great job. This is exactly what I needed. I was sure that it was exactly the wrong thing. I didn't, you know, it was just one of those. Catastrophizing. And it's funny because we actually have a choice when something, when something is unknown, there's a number of choices. You can make it about yourself and say the worst thing ever has happened. But if you wanted to, because they're both, you know, uninformed by actual reality, because you don't know what's happened. You could also be like, oh, what my email must've been so good that they're just planning a surprise party for me, you know, but we never, we never assume that we always assume it's the absolute worst. That, that is true. But from now on, I'm going to think, okay, there's just, there's cake down the road for me because the email was so awesome. And that, which may be totally absurd, but sometimes assuming the worst thing ever is happening is actually equally as absurd. And it's kind of something in between or, or it has nothing to do with you because people lead lives not always who knew not always thinking about you. yeah the, i'm i'm the actor of my own play or tv show but they're the actor of there's like the main character it's it's one of That's- those things that you just have to start thinking about that and when i finally like that finally started clicking it was like oh yeah they probably have stuff they're doing too and they'll look at it when they look at it and it maybe exactly what they wanted and they'll tell me if it's not. So exactly. Well, yeah. and I love everything you have to say because I as I shared in our emails, like I too have been on my own journey with meditation. I think I'm three years into a more more formal practice, but I also connected with Gina Cho over the years. Um and for those who don't know, I think she's a bankruptcy lawyer, but also also, I think a you know a meditation instructor. A lot of law firms will bring her in to do meditation for lawyers. She wrote a book called The Anxious Lawyer, and she has a podcast called The Resilient Lawyer. So I definitely think people should check that out. I was on the Resilient Lawyer podcast maybe two years ago. I think it was episode one hundred eight. I think it's called something like like calming the reactive mind, something something like that. And I share my own my own journey with meditation, but I've absolutely experienced that you show up a little bit differently that observer effect where you're like, oh, wait, I could take a slightly more, and this can sound sort of strange and clinical, but I can take a slightly more detached view of my emotions and acknowledge that they're happening and then maybe choose to have a different response to them. It's because you notice that you're having them. I think that's the thing. Yeah. It's like I catch myself having that like the starting that spiral, the downward spiral. And if I can catch it, then I'm like, okay, just breathe. And then you, and it's, what's weird is that now 20, almost 21 years into practicing as a lawyer, I still catch myself doing that. And it's like, I don't think that, you know, the email that I sent is going to cause any huge problems, but like, I worry about those things and I'm like, have to just say, okay, wait, that's probably not going to happen. And you're right. The catastrophizing happens. And if I can stop it soon enough, like, because I catch it, it's like, okay, there's a thought. And that's a thought. I don't have to act on that thought. I don't have to freak out because of one random thought that happened to go through my head. Well, and you're really exhibiting, much like how you know law is a practice, meditation is also a practice. It's something, so the catching negative, but you'll keep, we're going to both keep catching them forever. There's not this goal of like, I became enlightened last week. I never have <laughs> negative thoughts. I meditated for one week and I am now enlightened. But I think as lawyers and as type A individuals who want to be perfect at things, 
even deciding to do something like meditation where you'll, you know, you'll read and you're like, wait, you want me to do what I'm, and you and if you haven't had a moment to yourself to just be quiet and still that didn't involve going to sleep and even sleep probably has the same issue. Oh, yeah. Your mind has so many things going on. And so I think a lot of people, but also lawyers will feel defeated because they're like, well, I tried it. I got the calm app. I tried it for five minutes. I did not feel calm. This clearly isn't working for me. <laughs> and they don't they don't realize that, you know, that's normal. That's how everybody feels. Um, but something that I think is important for people to know is there's a lot of different styles of meditation out there. And there's likely one, if it's something you're interested in, that will work better for you. So if one form after you give it, I mean, I would say at least a month versus the like one day that we most people give it. But if it doesn't work for you, flip to something else, find something else. But I think oftentimes as, as attorneys, we're just like, well, I didn't, I wasn't the best at it on the first day. So this is clearly not helpful. Yeah. I didn't reach Nirvana. So clearly I, I have to give up. And that's one of the things that we've heard a little bit with our, the challenge that we're doing is like, people are like, oh, I don't know. I don't do the call map. I, in fact, I don't personally use the call map. I like insight timer because there are like, thousands of different teachers on that and people who do guided meditations, which for me, that was how I got started. I, I did, I was like, oh, I can do a guided meditation and someone will tell me what I should be doing, you know, and remind me it's okay if you've found that you've sort of, your mind has wandered and just come back. And once, once you realize that the catching yourself wandering is actually a good thing, like that's that's the thing where you, that is the practice, and the more you catch yourself with your mind wandering, that means you are becoming more mindful, and exactly. you can do that more as a a daily exactly. thing. My entry point was also guided meditation. So you know, fully, we actually all the lawyers get the call map for free. But now I, I don't use any sort of guide. And I went to, I had an in-person training for it's Vedic meditation, which is actually the same as transcendental meditation. Oh, okay. So I'm one of those strange people that ideally meditates twice a day for 20 minutes. Now that, that second meditation can be harder to fit in. For me, getting in-person instruction was really, really helpful in a way that the, because I'd read a lot of books and, you know, I'd listen to apps and listen to podcasts kind of didn't help as much. But I love talking about that because I think for so many people finding those self-care tools. So for you and I, meditation has really resonated with us and it has with a lot of people. But for some people, it's other things. But I do think universally, most lawyers who've been practicing for a long time, and as you said, you know, over, over 20 years, have had to find ways to take care of themselves. And so that the job just doesn't sort of you know, take you take you with it, essentially. <laughs> it will run you over if you're not careful, definitely. I mean, and it's just a matter of learning partly, you know, as you get more into it, you can sort of not necessarily say no, because I don't know that I say no that often when people ask me to do something, but to recognize that you do have a little bit of leeway to maybe say yes, but, you know, can we change the schedule and things like that. I think those are the types of things that, and it's not that, meditation will help you like do that. But I think it gives you that a little bit more of a sense, like I don't have to say yes to everything in, right now so that you're just completely screwing up your own schedule. People recognize that you are, you know, have other things too. And that's like, makes it easier for you to not be so worried about doing well, that. And what you just said, I think is really powerful because sometimes it's verbally the yes, but whatever else needs the other person needs to know. But sometimes it's yes. And you need to say the butt to your, the butt is to yourself, but I'm going to go eat lunch. And then I'm cut because there's even little things. And I've, I, I, you know, I've lived this and I think a lot of lawyers do Well, for some reason you can ramp up the level of how fast something needs to happen. And don't get me wrong. Client service matters. Let's turn the document. But, but sometimes we'll ramp it up so much where it's like, but you could have actually slept last night. Like you didn't, but like you could have, or you right. could have stopped to get that glass of water. And so sometimes that conversations with your with yourself. And before we go to my two final questions, I also had to ask, I think you mentioned you did one of Gina's in-person retreats. Yes. Was it at was it at Esalen? I honestly was it in I California. It was in California. It was in California. Okay. It was in California. It had been, I don't know the name. I know we started, it was like there was a, there was wildfires that essentially destroyed the first place and then she was able to move it to a different place okay near the bay area but I okay. cannot tell you. It sounds, it's because there's a very nice, I've seen her up do some of the offerings. It's at this very nice sort of well-known like 
health and wellness and like big surfs. And I saw, I was like, did, did Belinda get to go there? That's amazing. It, it was really cool. I mean, it was, you know, on the beach or not far from a beach. It was sort of in like this little teeny tiny town. It, it, I rented a car and drove down. Yep. It's, it sounds like Esalen. It, it really does. was. I just can't remember yep. the exact Which name. by the way, for people who don't know what Esalen is, if you watched Mad Men, and saw the very last scene where Don Draper is literally meditating in the last scene. That is Esalen. So for, back in like, what, the 70s or something. It's a place that's somewhat well known. But I just think that's so cool that you took the time out to go and do that. And she does this, she used to do pre-pandemic retreats specifically for attorneys. And I just think carving out that time for yourself, you know, getting that in-person instruction is really, really really neat. And obviously I could talk about this for a very long time. So, so I will stop. But um, as we come to a close, I wanted to ask, is there anything you wanted to touch on that you didn't get to touch on? But then also, what's your advice for lawyers? What's your advice, you know, to law students or somebody who's maybe junior in their legal career and, you know, looking at this, how to navigate it going forward? Okay. So I don't know that I didn't touch on anything, but as far as advice for law students or, or people, younger attorneys. I, I think one of the things that I was told early on, and I think makes a lot of sense, is that you try to make the people that you work for look good. And so that works out, to, and it's you know a little bit trite because it's something everybody hears. That and my, what I said before about being nice to your assistants and the people who you work with, like respectful of everyone you work with, regardless of what you think is the food chain for them, for the 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 place you're working. But I think that if you make your bosses, and so that's the partners, look good, help them be able to understand that they can rely on you so that you're not ha- they're not having to go back and check your work constantly. If you're doing a good enough job up front, I think that it may not seem like you're going to move ahead that way, but you will. And you'll do it with the help of those people who you've made look good in the past who will then want to help you move forward. And I think it's sort of a it's a good spiral to get into because then as you get more senior, you know, you hopefully you'll have the same associates who are like going to help you look good and then you can help them on their way. So it's kind of like this stepping stone up the path of one another, just kind of helping everyone up the, to do their best as they go forward. I think that's a law firm key to success. Make them look good for either, you know, the judge or for the client. Absolutely. With that, Belinda, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And if a listener has comments or questions, wants to reach out to you, can they find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Definitely. I'm on there. Easy to Google. So (laughs) fantastic. Thank you so much, Belinda. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.